Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. There is a lot of talk about the cost of goods and services, better known as inflation. And a key part of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank's policy, is to manage or head off inflation, or at least manage it. On this program, we welcome back the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Richmond Federal Reserve District, Tom Barkin. In a moment, we will start, and stay with us. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, an executive profile featuring Tom Barkin, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Each year or so, we like to include a voice that has some leverage, a voice that also knows what's going on in the region, monetarily, business-wise. We are glad to welcome back the president of the Federal Reserve District of the Federal Reserve, President Tom Barkin. President Barkin, welcome back to the dialogue. Thank you. No, thank you. It's always fun to be here. Uh, to separate out, sir, a lot of, and I'm just gonna call it hyperbole, but certainly emotion around inflation, around jobs, around COVID, around cons public health concern, around housing. If, 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 if we try to put those all to the side, sir, what is job one for the U.S. Central Bank from here going forward? Well, I see job one is normalization. And just for context, um, this pandemic has been incredible. It's been two years. And when the pandemic started, we put in place a set of, I'll call them emergency measures. We took rates down 150 basis points We've bought multiple trillions of dollars of, of assets. We've helped solidify markets. Um, and much of that was needed during a time where unemployment spiked to levels that we had never seen in my lifetime. Um, and But we're on the back end of this now. Unemployment is now down, most recent report, 3.9%. Inflation, which many of us were worried about two years ago, was actually under our target, is now meaningfully over our target. And so in a world where our mandated goals are inflation, unemployment. Inflation's high, unemployment is low. It's time for us to get back to normal. So to me, the question is how to get back to normal. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell in testimony uh, in, uh, on renomination to the Fed a couple of weeks ago, as you well know, all but apologized that the Fed was not aggressive enough in addressing inflation and coming out uh, before this. And I'm not going to debate that or ask you about that per se. But when we when we take a look at inflation as it is now, and inflation's relationship, and I don't want I don't want to get too far down on the weeds, sir. But th the idea that we've got historic amounts 
of liquidity and cash looking for a place to go, but yet still a lot of inflation. How do you balance those two ends of the barbell? And is that, it's got to be a delicate uh, uh, balance, is it, for the Fed? Well, think short-term and think medium-term. Inflation. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that inflation today is being significantly driven by a set of factors having to do with this pandemic. On the demand side, we've had stimulus uh, at extraordinary levels. Uh, we've had uh, repressed spending during the shutdown that's come back into the uh, economy. We've had a big rotation from services uh, into goods. On the supply side, we've had all the outages that you know, you know and the listeners have heard about, uh, boats lined up outside of ports. And then we've had these constraints on labor supply, some of which are also related to COVID. So we've had price pressures at significant levels across the economy, driven in big part by what's happened in and out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You notice I didn't say cash and liquidity levels, okay? Now, in the medium term, uh, cash and liquidity, they do matter a lot. You know, monetary aggregates do matter a lot in terms of what happens for inflation. So in the medium term, the challenge is how do you get uh, that under control? How do you get rates in the right place? How do you get uh, money supply in the right? Those, those are the kinds of issues you've got in the medium term. But I want to make sure we separate those because in the near term, I don't think that's what's been dri driving inflation. I think it has been the dynamics that you and I all know about in terms of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Let's unpack the supply just for, for a minute, President Barkin, the idea that it's been and I'm going to say weaponized in the press because of the of the of the high emotion around getting goods on shelves, getting services, as you said, in the ports, having a lot of boats backed up. And economists said that we're, we may be thinking about this wrong. It certainly is a supply chain issue, but it's more of a demand crisis that started in March of 2020. How do you characterize that? Well, you know, both sides are right. There's demand in this and there's supply in it. I, I think uh, if you go back to April of 2020, the economy was shut down. Uh, if you ran a manufacturing operation, you were worried about uh, having too much capacity, not too little capacity. We had um, state, local governments actually shutting down some manufacturers. And so um, uh, if you look at the economy in the summer of 2020, it was actually deflationary, not inflationary. We had unbelievably short demand and uh, and the demand was actually less than the supply that was being created. Now, the economy reopened, and in particular, in the spring of last year, spring of 2021, with vaccines hitting, it reopened in force. And when the economy reopened in force, what happened is you had an extreme increase in demand. That demand rotated, as I said earlier, from services to goods. And manufacturers, many of whom had constrained capacity during the shutdown, just weren't able to, to catch up. And and I don't blame manufacturers for that. If I were a production planner and it was January of 2021, I didn't know if vaccines would roll out. I didn't know if they'd be effective. Yeah. I didn't know there'd be another $2 trillion of stimulus in March. There was a lot I didn't know and couldn't anticipate for what was happening. But what's happened, of course, is that demand has escalated and supply hasn't caught up. Then on the supply side, it's not just the production planning part because um, most people, myself included, thought labor markets would come back a lot faster than they actually have. Uh, and you still have almost 4 million fewer people working than you did in February of 2020. And those people are not working in part because they've retired, in part because they're taking care of kids or grandkids, um, in part because they're worried about their health 
and COVID, perhaps in part because uh, they've got money in their pockets and aren't yet ready to come back to work. Perhaps they've had a life change. Um, and so, uh, you know, that amount of the supply side, that part of the supply side, people just weren't ready for either. So yes, demand's part of it. Yes, supply's part of it. And again, we just have a rebalancing we're going to have to go through. And I think that's going to be the 2022 story. You, you, you referred to it here just a second ago around this, the, and I'll call it the great resignation because it's been coined that term. Is the great resignation being miscast as just, and I don't want to oversimplify it or diminish some of the angst around it, but is the great resignation really a change in how labor and workers interact and become part of this, what this, this economy is? Well, I, I think of the workforce in three different segments. Maybe this helps. Um, I start with uh, skilled trades. And of course, that'd be plumbers and carpenters and welders, but it would also be truck drivers and it would also be nurses. And that's a group that was short before we started. And COVID has only made them shorter. Construction has boomed, manufacturing has boomed. Obviously, you've got the needs in the healthcare system and truck drivers. And we just don't have the manufacturing, if I want to put it that way, in place to catch up with what we need in terms of uh, demand. That hasn't been a change. We don't have truck drivers leaving the economy, I don't think. This is about we just haven't manufactured enough of people in the skilled trades. Um, then you've got a second segment, which I'll call um, lower incomes personal service workers. Millions and millions and millions of them were laid off in April of 2020. Um, some went on to other jobs. Um, uh, but many of them, you know, have, having now been called back to work, are not coming back to work. And I do think that segment has changed its view on what it means to work in that sector. Um, maybe it's health concerns. Uh, maybe it's not wanting to wear masks at work. Maybe it's having found their way into other careers. But that's the place where the economy is short. That's where the four million people are. And you could characterize it as a life change, but it's not a life change. It's you know, a job that looked stable before is no longer stable. A, a job that looked healthy before may not look healthy. Mm -hmm. And there are other alternatives out there. The third segment is the professional uh, class. And uh, unfortunately, when most of us read about the great resignation, we're thinking about ourselves. That segment's tight, but it's not so tight that it's at historic levels of tightness. You do see some resignations there, but you're not seeing the quit rates or even the wage escalation in that segment the way you are in the other two, with the exception of some places like, you know, artificial intelligence and cyber and cloud transition. And, and that's the place you have to worry about. But I don't think yet we're seeing that sort of massive life change. Uh, President Barkin, we're going to jump around here a little bit, but I want to make sure that we do, while well, we got you, check all these boxes. And before we go any further, if you're watching this program, this is actually being recorded here in mid-January, uh, January, 14th to be exact, and you are watching it now, at least on February 4th, if not later. So it's important to know that these comments um, in, 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 retros or in respect to that. Um, let, let me come back to the cash just for a second, President Bark, and the idea of so much cash, so much liquidity, and I don't mean just federal relief, but low interest rates, of course, as you well know. How much distortive effect does that have on this current economy? And how do you discount that effect of all of that cash waiting for a place to be placed? Well, I do think there's a lot of, I'll call it artificiality uh, in the economy. Um, that includes 
fiscal stimulus, which has gone into lots of different places and has both created demand and inhibited supply. Uh, that would include COVID, uh, which has both rotated demand and uh, affected supply. And of course, low interest rates you know, have an effect. Now, there are interest-sensitive sectors. Housing would be a good example. You know, automotive, where lower interest rates do you know, motivate people to buy. It makes it cheaper uh, to buy something. Um, so I think that's very much real. Now, one thing that's interesting is that lending isn't really elevated. So the other way you would think low interest rates would lead to a lot more borrowing. Um, but maybe it's COVID, maybe it's the stimulus programs. Consumer credit, uh, with the exception of mortgages, hasn't really elevated. In fact, people have paid down their credit card bills. Commercial credit, uh, fine. You know, government debt uh, is up. I'm not sure it's that. But I'm not, I don't think you've seen the full impact because of these other, I'll call it more physical factors, both the fiscal stimulus and the uh, the COVID impact. What of interest rates? How rather? How much of interest rates driven uh, real estate prices, both commercial and but specifically residential? Half, sixty percent, twenty percent. How much do you think has been the motivation on, on what's going on in a spectacular real estate industry? Well, I think there's no doubt if mortgages are less expensive, if you know if the cost of uh, a monthly payment's less, then it, you can buy a little bit more. But it sure seems to me that what's going on is an entire society. Uh, was stuck 24-7 in their house. And there's just no way to understand the flaws of your house any better than living in it 24 hours a day. And so people in apartment situations decided they needed to buy a house. People in uh, New York decided they needed a second house. Um, people moved from the city uh, to the suburbs. At the same time, uh, a generation of millennials that had decided not to get into houses uh, coming out of 2008 Mm -hmm. uh, got to the point, started having kids and decided they really needed a house. And even the supply of houses was short because, you know, I wasn't going to move my mother from a, um, from her house into a multifamily situation during a time of COVID. So again, the physical demand supply factors, I, I can't say the cost of money doesn't matter, but I think the biggest driver of demand has been this need to get a better house. Are there any conversations that go on in a, a formal FOMC meetings or some of the informal conversations that you have around the district that when the economy does turn and the economic cycle does again rear its head on the, on, on the slow side, that, that we will be faced with large homes and maybe even with the low cost of, of funds here, President Barkin, that we, we could get into a situation where people can't afford it? Is that a, is that a problem? Uh, we'll see, you know, how all this plays out. I'll say um, the other thing I didn't mention is for 10 years post the crisis, we also didn't have that much construction of homes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do think it's a market that, uh, as we all know, was massively uh, uh, bushwhacked in 2008, you know, 2009. And it's just taken a long time to come back. And so 10 years of underbuying, 10 years of underbuilding, we finally caught up. And so um, I don't have the sense that the supply that's being put in the market today is going to overwhelm the demand that's still out there that's unsatisfied. Of course, there's some point in the future where those lines could cross and you would see it. But, you know, on my list of uh, markets of concern, the housing market's not, you know, at, at the top of it. I'll also add leverage ratios in that market are nowhere near where they were 15 years ago. And so, you know, people are not as levered up in their houses. And of course, that's your risk. It's not just 
valuation dropping, right? It's valuation dropping at a time where you've got you know more leverage than you can afford. And at least at, so far, what I see seems okay. Wait, shifting from the residential side to the commercial side, um, you've got commercial developers, owners of, of properties saying that they haven't seen cap rates here, five, five and a half, six max, but around the five is where cap rates are in markets like Charlotte, Raleigh, Charleston, Greenville, South Carolina, of course, Asheville. All of these markets are high growth markets. Are those, is that, is that a permanent change, sir? Do you expect those cap rates to go back up or is, is just this a new high watermark that we'll have to assimilate what, what, what part of a commercial real estate is now going to have to be that way? Oh, I mean, uh, commercial real estate, I think, is a, a story that's still unfolding. Um, most people would have thought that in the context of work from home, that especially office uh, and even you know retail would just you know fall off the table. And that hasn't yet happened in the way that you might have guessed. Now, part of it is that there are segments. Industrial is still white hot. Um, you know, multifamily has come back and come back strong. And rents, particularly in our region, you know, quite strong as opposed to places like uh, you know, New York or DC, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I think, uh, downtown office space in particular, the story is still going to be told, uh, the rent, the leases are very long. There's still uncertainty about how people are going to work. And I think in that context, you've not seen, you know, the weakness in that market that you might've expected yet yeah, vacancies are creeping up and we'll just see where it happens. And I expected to know a lot more, and this may be a, a bigger story. I expected to know a lot more in the first half of this year, but I think Omicron has messed things up just to one more time. And so it'll just take a while to see what normality looks like on the other side of it. Yeah, is there any surprise with the Omicron, Omicron variant is, is how it's affected either good or bad for you? Have you, have you looked at it to say, well, you know, it's, a, it's more acute maybe in some ways, but yeah. you feel like th there's a lot of, and I don't wanna put words in your mouth, um, but a lot of fatigue around public health. Well, the, um, the human side of this is just uh, severe exhaustion and weariness because all of us sort of hoped that this thing was going to be over when the vaccines rolled out. And then the Delta thing came, but boy, maybe we've got that behind us. And so the notion that there's one more virus and perhaps even, you know, others behind it, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're all just exhausted. I am uh, on viruses in general. Uh, the second thing, I think there's just a shock value. If you look at the seven day average caseloads, you know, we thought the winter of 2021 was uh, bad enough, but the numbers have been truly astounding. Uh, three, four, five times the numbers we saw at the peak last January. On the reassuring side, obviously, it's not leading to the same kind of uh, hospitalization and death situation. So there is a potential that this thing starts to move toward endemic as opposed to, to pandemic. And I will say, that's what I see on the demand side. Um, uh, Business travel, of course, is being curtailed. You know, conference catering is being curtailed. But things that are very specific to in-person work, I think you definitely see the impact there. But I don't think you see it in the rest of the demand situation, at least the numbers that I'm uh, tracking. Now, where you do see it, and this is where I mean in terms of uh, it'll delay getting back to normal, is on the supply side. And I think it is probably fair to say that unless we get a, a variant that puts a lot of us back in the hospital, um, uh, COVID has become a supply side issue. It's no longer a demand side issue. We're not shutting economies down with the exception of those sectors I'm talking about. 
Um, but it is hitting the supply side. Um, we had all the demand we wanted over Christmas for airline travel. We just didn't have enough airline crews. Right. That's a good a good example. Right. Uh, I'm definitely see that in terms of shortages. I was talking to a meat processor yesterday um, who's having you know trouble getting staffing. I mean, so it's going to hit the supply side. And that means it's going to delay the workforce's return to full employment. And it's going to, unfortunately, probably create pressure on prices. Any idea when business travel will approach a, a rebound? Boy, I, I mean, you have to make an assumption on variance first. Um, I, I will note that uh, if you go back even six months ago, you know, when, when Delta started to surge, um, people pretty quickly canceled their October plans. Um, what I've noticed at this point is, and this will be aired February 4th, so we'll see if it's any different by the time it's aired. People are canceling two weeks out, but they're not canceling six weeks out. So I think even the business cancellation window, people want to get to the other side of it and want to get exposed. And I, I'm hopeful uh, and expect that, you know, in the spring, especially the ability to do stuff outside, you're going to see this behind us. But I think the window shortened, but you're still seeing it hit hit the business uh, business behaviors. Uh, one of the bright spots around po policy, at least um, spending policy, is uh, the infrastructure bill. It's uh, something short of $2 trillion, it, but it's large. When do we start to see the benefit of those dollars? Where does it start to be deployed? And, and how, do you, how do you kind of look at that? Well, it's about a it's about a trillion. Um, it's uh, yeah, right. Better um, got a real focus on broadband that is, um, I think, going to be deployed relatively quickly. And uh, most of the communities I talk to are getting organized as quickly as they can to get that deployed in the right place. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff that's roads and bridges and ports and the like. And and that you know you've got to take time to to mm -hmm. build that. These things are not as shovel ready as you might uh, have hoped. The thing I worry the most about, though, as I suggested earlier, is infrastructure workers. Do we have enough people to do the work? And what kind of pressure are we going to have on what's already a white hot infrastructure market? And so I don't it doesn't stress me too much if the infrastructure money comes out 18 to 24 months from now, because if you gave me another road to build, I don't know where you'd find the people to build it today. And so I think, again, we've got to get the economy back. I'm really hopeful. And a, and a a negative trend uh, that we've seen is enrollment in these community college degree programs. Enrollment in community colleges is down this year. It was down last year. Um, probably part of that is that wages are up for entry-level jobs. And so people faced with a choice between getting a credential and taking a job or actually finding the jobs more attractive. But regardless, you know, those are the places that produce a lot of these infrastructure workers. And we've just got to get find a way to get more people in and through these programs and licensed into these into these jobs because I think there will be the demand for that infrastructure and but we're going to have a, a supply shortage well so then where do the workers come from where I mean quintessentially where do you see them coming from well we have we have an economy where even February 2020 63% of people were working 80% little less of prime age workers were working we have workers on the sidelines throughout the economy um you know in the in the smaller towns in our district lots of them have almost half the uh, uh population not in the workforce and so bringing people into the workforce which is a combination of attractive jobs getting people the training um thinking hard about search thinking hard about breaking down some of the barriers that exist today 
um, whether they be uh, licensing issues or drug tests or, um, uh, or other background check. Getting folks in the economy, I think, is mm-hmm. a real imperative. I gave a speech on that in, in Greenville a, a couple of months ago. I think that's actually a really big deal for us. That's what we've got to, uh, to work on. If we're going to get enough people into these jobs so that we can get the work done. But we can't we can't blame federal relief money for unemployment, lack of unemployment participation anymore, can we? We're pretty well past that. Do you feel that? Uh, well, I, I certainly would have been among the people last August who expected when the enhanced unemployment insurance expired that you see a surge of people in the workplace. We just haven't seen that. Um, now, why that is? Again, I I believe that part of it is COVID and health concerns still. I believe part of it is care concerns, whether that be elder care or child care, uh, or frankly, grandkids taking care of the grand, I mean, grandparents taking care of the grandkids. I hear a lot of that uh, uncertainty of school. So I think that's part of it. I do think there's a piece to it, which is even the less fortunate among us still have more money in their pocket today than they did uh, two years ago. JP Morgan uh, says liquid savings are up 70%, even for that segment. Again, that's $1,000, not a huge amount of money. Um, and so some of it will have to work down. Now, some of that probably came from transfer payments, but some of that also came because nobody spent as much during COVID as they did before. And so people saved money in ways they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've been watching this dialogue, it is important to remember and to note, program note, uh, it is being uh, uh, taped here on January 14th, but actually probably you're seeing it now for the first time on February 4th. But again, our thanks to uh, President Barkin, Richmond Federal Reserve President, uh, who is now starting, I think, your fifth year. Is that That's accurate? right. Goes fast. Uh, uh, well, congratulations, sir. We're, gl- we're gl- glad to have you on the job. And again, nice to see you and best of luck going forward. Stay healthy. Thanks, Chris. You too. Thank you for joining us. Until next week, I'm Chris William. If you have any questions or comments, like to watch or rebroadcast, uh, go to carolinabusinessreview.org. Until next week, happy weekend. Stay warm. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, The Duke Endowment, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.